Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 296 of the Fun With Cars Formula One and Other Motorsports Podcast, or episode 30 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who forgot to check the overnight delivery box on Sebastian Vettel's last liter of fuel shipment, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. It is Wednesday morning, August 4th. And it is my son's fifth birthday, and Chris and I are going to talk about the Hungarian Grand Prix to celebrate. Well, happy birthday to Harrison. Yes, Harrison is five, Barack Obama is 60, and I have a half-eaten Long John donut to eat um, <laughs> once, uh, once we're done podcasting. So I have a way to celebrate already. Um, it was a pretty boring Grand Prix. So I think I'm going to get to that donut pretty soon. Regardless, we're going to press on and go through this weekend chronologically. Um, and I don't know if there's anything that stood out for you on Friday or if we should jump right to qualifying. Yeah, let's just jump to qualifying, I think, because that was quite surprising in itself. You know, we had a Mercedes-Benz lockout, which wasn't uh, that predictable given the last few uh, Grand Prix. Um, and Hamilton was on pole by more than four-tenths of a second. Um, relative to Verstappen, that is. I'm highlighting that because, you know, we it looked like Red Bull um, had started to pull away on one lap speed and, and uh, race pace relative to Mercedes, you know, based on the evidence in Austria and to some degree Silverstone um, because uh, Max was able to, I'd say, dominate the sprint race on the Saturday before uh, we had the controversy of Sunday. So a surprising result, Mercedes seemed to... Uh, get the car set up better in the high ambient temperature of Hungary. Uh, Red Bull seemed to be in a bit of a pickle trying to figure out what uh, type of uh, wing settings or wing types they wanted to use. They played around with Max's rear wing and, and adjusted uh, all sorts of things on the car but couldn't quite get, get it where he wanted it. Uh, still good enough for, for locking out the second row but um, you know it, it sort of it indicates to me that Maybe there isn't still one car with clear pace advantage in that it will very much depend on the track um, con configuration, uh, the, the local temperatures and, and basically how the team approaches the weekend that we could still see Mercedes on top or Red Bull on top as we go throughout the rest of the season. So that was quite, quite interesting. And then uh, well, we had... There, mm -hmm. Real quick, though, to add on to that, you're, you're absolutely right that it was quite interesting and it was a bit of a reversal of what i always understood to be inherent mercedes advantages um because hungary is an is a very tight track the tightest track other than monaco usually mercedes tends to stand out more in high downforce but also high speed tracks like silverstone here they were showing much better form in a track that is quite different than Silverstone. And uh, I found that to be a surprise. And uh, not only did Mercedes have the one, two, but they got through Q2 on the medium tire and Red Bull had to go to softs. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, Red Bull definitely were had less margin relative to the midfield runners, which suggests that sort of Red Bull slipped back rather than Mercedes leapt forward uh, it's certainly in qualifying. Um, I, I, you know, we never really saw the Mercedes true pace in Monaco. Uh, you know, Botas was was pretty close to pole position, but in Hamilton's hands, he never got the tyres in the right uh, temperature window. So I don't think we ever saw the inherent pace of the Mercedes with with tyres that are that, that were properly switched on. Um, and you know, if you look at their performance in Barcelona, they certainly weren't struggling in the slower corners in in sector three at Barca. So I don't disagree with your point in general, but I think the Mercedes can be made to work around uh, slower corner tracks uh, if they can get the tires into the right window. And we saw that evidence obviously on Saturday. Do you think, uh, do you think it was uh, the weather that was helping them as much as anything? Was the, the, the warm weather of Hungary playing into Mercedes hands or was that another surprise? No, I think that was a big factor that the higher temperature seemed to be 
sort of Red Bull's undoing to some degree. Um, and, um, you know, Mercedes are able to switch on the tyres much, much better because of that uh, higher temperature, certainly than, than they had at Monaco. So, yeah, that was that was a factor. Now, whether or not that would have then hurt there, if we'd had a dry race, a fully dry race on Sunday, whether that would have hurt their, their tyre performance, uh, I, I don't think we know. I mean, it looked like Hamilton was able to run plenty of laps. He did extra stops on Sunday, of course, but he was, he, you know, he didn't seem to suffer from tyre deg. So whatever reason, Mercedes seemed to be working well around Hungary. So, um, so you know, interesting swing in, in sort of the general championship uh, developments, really, that Mercedes seemed to have regained a little bit of, of pace and, and back on the front foot uh, relative to Red Bull. Yeah, I, I would say so. Now, there was a big disappointment in qualifying, which was uh, Williams' performance, specifically George Russell. He had such a wonderful stream of getting into Q2, even getting into Q3. And here at Hungary, couldn't even get out of Q1. And this was considered to be a strong track for Williams. So qualifying was very disappointing for the iconic team. Yeah, you're not wrong on that. Williams out in Q1. Um, Russell was only marginally quicker than his uh, teammate Latifi as well. Um, so I don't know whether that meant that Russell just didn't perform his normal, you know, heroics in qualifying. Um, but yeah, it didn't look good for Williams Saturday evening. That That is true. Uh, conversely, um, you know, we've given this, this one gentleman quite some grief over the last uh, couple of podcasts, but Ocon was able to out-qualify Alonso, so we had Alpine in 8th and ninth. So uh, he was attributing that to his new chassis, which I know you've, you've got some thoughts on. But I, uh, it Well, like... you know, I had, I, I had more positive opinions about it than you did, sir, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it looked like he'd... Uh, he'd found some pace again and so it already on Saturday looked like uh, Alpine was uh, heading in the right direction um, I didn't really see you know we had the usual middle order shuffle with Perez uh, just about getting ahead of Gasly Norris and Charles Leclerc poor old Carlos Sainz had a bad day didn't he him and Mick Schumacher both yes. crashing uh, so Sainz was down in 15th and Schumacher uh, was unable to compete in qualifying, actually. So, um, yeah, they were having a having a rough Saturday, but then, it, you know, it all changed for the race. So, yeah, real quick on that thing with uh, signs. You look at the footage, and it was like, man, that came out of nowhere, it seemed. And everyone was saying, well, you can't blame it on a gust of wind. That's ridiculous. But it seems like it was a gust of wind. <laughs> I mean, that that seems to be... The agreed-upon explanation by the engineers and Carlos Sainz. So I think that's what we're talking about for a couple of seconds. Yeah, I know there were a few drivers complaining about the conditions. Uh, I think, you know, if you're right, it, it does seem when we drive at more uh, pedestrian speeds, the, the fact that, you you know, wind might influence your line or, or control of the vehicle seems completely absurd. But, of course, these guys are right at the limit, or they should be if they're trying to extract the maximum performance. so And it's such know, an aero-sensitive car. Right. Uh, so, he, you know, it was at the final turn, so he's trying to get, he's trying to carry as much speed through that corner to, to obviously get as fast as he can down the straight before the DRS uh, can be applied. So he's, you know, he's pushing, and, uh, it, you know, something like that might just be enough to catch you out. And Carlos said that his entry speed for that corner that time around was actually slower than he had completed in earlier laps that session. So it wasn't even it wasn't even that he was trying higher entry speed this time around, according to Carlos anyway. Yeah, it's not um, a particular maneuver that covers you in glory, though, is it? Especially when it's so costly in your qualifying position. Uh, you know, Hungary traditionally has been a very difficult place to pass. Um, it's been a little bit better the last few seasons, mainly with, with DRS help. But, uh, you know, it's not somewhere like Monaco that you, you want to start lower down the order than your car deserves. So, yeah, it, um, a little bit of uh, egg on his face for that maneuver, whether it was the wind or not. Hungary, as we all know, is traditionally a hard place to pass. And... Uh, of course, that was the case for this Grand Prix. So why don't we just go down the qualifying order and call that the race result, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Do you not want to do that? Um, yeah, I think we should just... Well, it, it was it was rainy. That's always a good sign. Oh, right? that's a good point. It was rain. That was one minor little setback. So let's just... Wow. It just... There was just this little burst of rain. What was it? 20 minutes, 30 minutes before the start of the race. Mm-hmm. That threw a curveball. And boy, oh boy, did that unravel from there. Where, where, where do you want to start? Well, I think, you know, most of the drivers got away pretty well from their grid positions. Botas uh, from second was one of the few that did not. So he was, he was already swamped going into turn one um, and uh, on the back foot. And then, obviously, between him and Saints, uh, sorry, between him and Stroll, they then did their best to annihilate most of the other runners. Um, it was <laughs> it, it was quite a crazy first corner. I mean, so Botas got pincered. He got Norris had a wonderful start, was able to dive down the inside between Botas and the pit wall to get cleanly ahead of him going into turn one. Both of them are on the inside for turn one. And uh, Botas looks like he just completely missed his braking point, um, locked up, skidded back into the back of Norris's McLaren, who then, you know, was pitched into Verstappen, who had been doing nothing wrong. Verstappen had made a really good start from his third grid spot, was following Hamilton through turn one and just was completely collected by Norris. Uh, But Botas still wasn't done. He then managed to, (laughs) uh, out of control, uh, take out the other Red Bull of uh, Perez. Um, and if that wasn't enough, we had all the chances who decided to dive down the inside uh, who should have been able to avoid this melee. But Stroll took out Charles Leclerc, who in turn took out Daniel Ricciardo. So it was absolute carnage. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it was really, really, really something for... Um, us to see Botas just so effectively collect so many people. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I, and I definitely, I want to talk about Stroll a little bit too, because um, that that move in a lot of ways was more troubling for me. But I want to, I want to say, I when I first saw the incident between uh, Botas and, uh, and Lando, uh, Norris, I was thinking, oh man, that you know, Lando cut off all of Botas's arrow, and uh, he couldn't, he couldn't slow the car down. That's not fair. But looking at it again, I think you you said it accurately. Lando got got that pass done well in advance of the braking zone. Botas had plenty of time to react to it, and he just simply braked way too late, uh, especially considering the conditions. And all that was going on. I mean, is there anything that you can see other than him just missing his breaking point there? Was there any mitigating circumstances for Botas, do you think? So I can't remember the other car, but he got he did get pincered a little bit, didn't he? So you had Norris coming from the right, and there was another car coming from the left. Maybe it yeah. was Perez uh, or, or Verstappen. I, I can't honestly remember. I, but I think it was Perez. I think that's right. Yeah, so I think it... That certainly would have been, you know, taking a lot of his processing power to try and understand what was going on there. And then, you know, he didn't miss his breaking point by miles, did he? I mean, we're talking fractions of a meter, probably. And then obviously with the wet conditions um, and maybe too heavy a brake application, he just locked up the the front. So and there was no margin for error in that situation and he had nowhere to go. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a racing incident, isn't it? I mean, in, in the you're all diving as late on the brakes as you can into the first corner, knowing that that's critical for your race. Um, and you're on, you know, you're at a track, you have no idea what the grip levels are, really. Um, that's, and so, I mean, they, the only lap they got was the formation lap. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he may have taken a different line he may have have not been hard on it into turn one anyway um so you've got to give him a little bit of slack but it was you know it was a pretty bad mistake from someone as experienced as as him and at a really unfortunate time you know we go off for the summer break and you know it's rumored that mercedes will make a decision on their second driver for next season during the break not exactly how you want to uh, sign off before the holidays, no. is it? <laughs> no. And, and seriously, after Saturday, you've been like, okay, 
you know, like yeah. if if that weekend ended on Saturday, I think Botas would have been in a pretty okay place in terms of I've done what I can do. But uh, yeah. Before we get on to Stroll, I mean, I was amazed that Verstappen was able to continue. I mean, he took a really hard swipe from from. Norris. Oh yeah, there's lots to talk about there because yeah. I think Verstappen played this very unfortunate "woe is me" kind of thing, and and it's true he got unlucky. I am not trying to. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not trying to dis, but he got very lucky that he could keep going. A lot but of he people was were just done. Yeah, and he was helped by the red flag, wasn't he? I think without the red flag, he probably would have had to retire the car. But he had, uh, he he was obviously able to limp around until the flag was flown. Unlike Perez and and Norris, who who essentially had to retire on the spot. So, uh, well, Perez's car kept going, except for the urgency of Perez's engineer saying, "Stop the car! Stop the car immediately!" So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's what I'm getting at. Verstappen absolutely was unlucky. He had no, he played no role in causing that incident, but he was very lucky to be able to keep going and salvage. Um, and I want to take a moment to um, read another comment from uh, our longtime listener, Paul Peard. Um, and so, uh, Chris, I'd love to hear your reaction to this. From Paul, we all have our allegiances. We all have our favorites, although he spelled favorite wrong. What's this OU stuff? Um, we all love racing. But I don't know why. There's something about the way Christian Horner behaves that wants me to join the queue to give him a wedgie. Don't get me wrong. I like a fight. I like Red Bull as a team. And, and he says in parentheses, I am a Brit. I like the underdog. But all that post-Silverstone nonsense makes them generally, and him specifically, look a, lit, look a bit desperate. This time around, they were unlucky. Total innocence of a quote-unquote schoolboy Botas. But geez, stop playing the victim and just go out there and do it on the track. Good race today, no matter what flag you wave. Again, parentheses here, except for perhaps finish. There was something there for you. And massive high fives to Ocon, Alonso, and Alpine for a big and a big up for Russell for the best team player radio clip. Loved this race. So, um... He obviously the last couple of graphs there he touched on some things we'll get to, but I'm just curious of how you felt about the Red Bull reaction to what happened. Well, I intentionally didn't want to rake through all of the pre-race, you know, muck that was being slung between Red Bull and Mercedes because obviously, oh it's, yeah, because there all, was the there was a lot of the, yeah a lot of nonsense, and it, it's all rather you know unfortunate and sad really that they descended to that point i mean just you know the fact that they had uh um they had uh, alex albon run laps at silverstone using up one of their filming days to try and prove that hamilton couldn't have made the corner i mean uh, just absurd absolutely, absolutely absurd so um less said about that the better uh I think you can understand again I'll go back to one of my points from an earlier podcast I can understand their frustration you're sitting pretty winning the championship you know by miles and in the space of two races it's completely you know that lead has fallen fallen away and now they're behind in both championships and that's he must be you know you imagine all the work and all the effort that that they've put in to get to that point and watch it just disintegrate like that it is is you know must be massively massively frustrating um so i do give them sympathy but you've got to still act in a certain you know professional way haven't you i mean that yeah hoarder himself has been in this sport a long long time he knows how it works right one minute you can be up the next minute you can be wiped out um that's how it's always been that's one of the fascinations of it so um absolutely and what, well what's the there's the there's this englishism that I, it's throw your toys out the pram or something <laughs> right yep is it how close am i yeah i mean that's exactly that's exactly what what they did in between silverstone and uh hungary and and obviously the fact that botas was the one to trigger the incident that that led to one car being damaged and another car being retired will not have helped their mood but you know there was no there was no way they could accuse him of directly targeting their cars um, and there's no way you could accuse him of anything other than just, you know, a, a racing incident. Um, you know. Now hold on though. If this were a Benetton, 
and Flavio Benatori. I'm sorry, uh, Flavio were Briatori. Um, yeah. Briatori, thank you. Were were directing something. I might have been a slight bit more suspicious, <laughs> but, but uh, no. I mean, Botas clearly, obviously, this did not benefit him. This did not benefit Mercedes in any obvious and direct sense that would have been clear to see on turn one, lap one of a newly wet race. So totally absurd to think anything other than just, you know, accident. And I don't think, just to be clear, I just want to say this. I don't think anyone at Red Bull is accusing Mercedes of doing this purposely, but just any conspiracy theories that are going out there, those are all nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see if you watch the various onboards um, from turn, you know, from, from all the drivers through turn one that were involved in the incident, uh, just how fine the margins were. I mean, Stroll is literally millimeters away from wiping out Ocon. Um, <laughs> you know, Ocon was so fortunate to get through turn one oh, at yeah. all, let alone in second place. And that would have been it. He'd have been done as well. And we would have had a completely different winner. So, you know, Stroll took his took his chances, died down the inside, obviously break too late. Stroll and, didn't uh, take his chances. Stroll <laughs> tried to mow the lawn. Don't tell me Stroll tried to take chance. Listen, this is... I, okay, so what Botas did, he broke too late. He was trying to stay close, do whatever. He broke too late. What was Stroll thinking? I mean, he just... he. As opposed to slowing down further, staying on the racetrack, he dived to inside of the inside apex onto the grass, and he lost all his grip because even in the rain, asphalt is grippier than wet grass, and uh, slid right into the side of Leclerc. I, that was that was so amateur hour. That one. I'm sorry. A bit of a. I'll get off my soapbox. But that that one really, that was bad. <laughs> well, his breaking point was clearly going to be somebody else's car, wasn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't his finest moment. I, yeah, I think Russia blood to the head. You see a chance to, to, to make a ton of places. It's just uh, clearly he could, uh, an offer he couldn't refuse. Um, yes, it, it didn't really help his race either. So, uh Never mind. I mean, it, Leclerc was obviously hugely frustrated that he got taken out. And then obviously it ruined Daniel Ricciardo's race, who looked like being one of the big winners up until that point. Um, exactly so, right, yeah. Yeah, it was, as I said earlier, utter carnage. But then, of course, it just got worse. I mean, we we staggered around lap one and it looked like Lewis, you know, all his Christmases had come at once. He's, he's now leading and... Um, uh, and he's got Ocon behind him and uh, Danny Ricciardo um, sorry not Danny Ricciardo Verstappen obviously with a with a damaged car so it looked like it would be uh, an absolutely uh, huge huge win for him um, but then they threw the red and then craziness started I mean I really I, I can't I believe what we I love how you say witnessed. that's when the craziness started <laughs> <laughs> so we're at a red flag right It's it's been raining and it stopped raining and we're in Hungary and it's hot. So you might want to think about tire selection for the restart, might you not? I mean, I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought full wets would be appropriate, but I might've questioned intermediates too. And apparently no one on the grid did. They all just went for inters, which absolutely amazes me because it wasn't stipulated by the FIA that they start on inters you could choose whichever tire you wished um, and no one apparently paid any attention to the track and the rate of the you know of how quickly it was drying um, you know some of the journalists that were there on 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 the ground said it was obvious that the track was dry before before they uh, they rolled out the pit lane for the restart so that's the first thing that I don't understand. Why not a single remaining driver decided to roll a dice and go for slick tyres? That, that, especially down the order. If you're starting 14th, why wouldn't you put a set of slicks on? Right. Just absurd. Right. Well, there's, there's that. But the, the counter-argument to that, and I think we're going to get to this just a little bit more in a moment, multiple people thought more rain was coming. 
So I think there was things like it might be drying rather quickly now, but it could rain again at any moment, and then you'd be hosed. But then they got on the track for their formation lap for the second standing start, and clearly it was just as you said. I mean, it wasn't even just drying; it was dry. Yep. And now, now we have the situation where, you, as you say, you, the drivers are again out on the track and they can see the conditions for themselves. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not they could actually discuss it with the team and talk about pitting. So during a normal start, the, the original race start, the teams and drivers are not allowed to converse and not allowed to talk about pitting and, and changing tires. Uh, has got caught with that, um, I think, I think a couple of seasons ago. the rule ago. is the drivers can radio to the team, but the team cannot respond. Right. So, yeah, the driver can say, I want to come in to change tires, but they can't have a discussion and the team can't call the driver in to change tires. But that didn't apply in this situation because we weren't at the first start. We were at a restart. So they could have actually had a discussion and decided whether or not to change tires. And as it turned out, everyone decided it was absurd starting on the Inters, apart from Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. So uh, we had this ridiculous sight. Um, well, can I tell you something? What, uh, what flashed in my mind immediately was Indianapolis 2005. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, well, I was there. Were you there? No, not in 05, no. I saw yeah, it on I, I was but... there. I witnessed the six-car grid, and uh, I lasted about three laps of the six-car race before I started heading back to Michigan. But, yeah, I mean, forget <laughs> six, six cars as a luxury. We had the one-car grid. Exactly. And here's the most. And here's the part that's even crazier, is that if Hamilton had come in, they'd have started a no-car grid. <laughs> <laughs> My, Michael Massey was saying that if everyone had come into the pits, they'd have gone through the red light countdown <laughs> and gone... And we would have just seen the safety car. We just would have seen the safety car roll off and then wait (laughs) at the end of the pits for all the guys to leave the pits. Yeah. Yeah, they would have turned the red lights out and then the green light at the end of the pit lane would have gone on and then they would have trundled out of the pit lane and the race would have started. I mean, come on. That's absolutely ridiculous. I think they should have a rule in that situation where you can't pit at the end of the formation lap that you have to take the grid in whatever tyre you've picked, right or wrong, and then you can start pitting, you know, subsequently uh, at the end of that first lap. Because that yeah. was ridiculous. And honestly, I mean, what if Hamilton had stalled it? <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> that, well, he didn't have all the pressure that... Well, what if? Well, here's the real. What if Hamilton had bumped his uh, magic button? and uh, <laughs> <Right>. locked up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just such a bizarre thing. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're racing again. Hamilton, just as you were saying before the red flag, Hamilton looked like all Christmas had come at once. And next thing we know, Hamilton is behind Verstappen again. On what, lap three? Well, we can't, we can't go there yet. Hang on a second. We've got to talk more about what happened in the pit lane and the strategy there. So Mercedes... Oh, yeah, claiming. please, keep going. Yeah, so so obviously Mercedes and Lewis are the only ones not to pit. So they looked slightly ridiculous. And everyone was like, well, why didn't you pit? And so uh, they, they looked slightly to... more than slightly ridiculous, <laughs> okay. I think. They looked totally ridiculous. So, so then Toto was defending that decision, saying, well, even if they pitted, they wouldn't have come out in the lead. And they estimate that they would have rejoined in anywhere between 6th and 10th place. And the reason for that is that they have the first pit box. So Hamilton would have come in would have changed his tyres and then they would have had to hold him until there was a gap in the traffic to bring him back oh, out to the pit lane. fascinating. Okay. So so that is true. So where you're, so based on your position when you came into the pit lane and where your pit box was, very much determined how lucky you were um, when you rejoined the race. And, and sort of Ocon had a double, double lucky factor there because his pit, his pit box was far enough down the pit lane that he could get in and get out before being passed by anyone else. So... Um, so that was interesting. And you could see that there was, I mean, some of the footage again from the pit lane. The, we had the Raikkonen uh, hitting Mazapan. Um, 
so it was it was carnage in there and then my favorite if you haven't watched this you have to go and find it is russell deciding that he wasn't going to rejoin the pit lane queue who just drove down the right hand lane and passed everybody and actually took the lead on the exit of the pit lane only to realize that he was going to get penalized for that and had to give the places back but it was a brilliant piece of opportunistic driving Oh, I don't want to join this queue. I'm just going to drive down here and, <laughs> and uh, bugger <laughs> off into the into the into the lead. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, Mercedes and Hamilton should have pitted, obviously, and they would have been a, in a better situation even if they'd rejoined tenth. So, pitting. I mean, the other thing that you could argue was maybe he should have stayed out for longer on the inters because, I mean, pitting at the end of of the first lap after the resumption really just automatically put him to the back of the field. Um, whereas maybe trying to run, you know, four or five laps on inters may have allowed the field to spread out a little bit and then he wouldn't have been so heavily penalised. But I guess uh, they'd already looked at the deltas between the inters and, and the various dry compounds and realised that probably wouldn't have worked either. But, you know, it just seemed like they took the worst of all options there. And, it, and so, yeah, he was dead last after pitting. Um, we had Ocon and, and Vettel up front uh, contesting the lead and we had a great battle of Hamilton and Verstappen uh, with I think Gasly was in the mix and, and uh, Danny Ricciardo right at the back of the field. It was uh, it was amazing to see how his fortunes had been transformed. Well, and, uh, uh, and a Mr. Mick Schumacher was in the mix quite a bit more than usual as well. Oh, that's um, true, yeah. But I, that... I actually, in certain, in a certain regard, I want to take a step back a little bit. So, Red Bull got really lucky with the red flag and a chance to repair Verstappen's car. They couldn't repair it fully. Obviously, Verstappen's car was still wounded. But what did you make of how many of the repairs they got done, and how compromised do you think his car really was? Well, I think the repairs focused mainly on making sure it could last the race distance so i guess some some cooling lines were damaged they had to um fix those and then obviously remove bodywork that was compromised that wouldn't stay on for race duration um but they weren't able to replace you know the barge board and uh, all of the complex vein structure that exists you know at the leading edge of the side pod um I, you know, Christian Horner's throwaway comment that he had less downforce than a has was a bit cheeky, um, <laughs> a little bit unkind. But um, but yeah, there's no doubt. Not only do you, do you have you lost downforce, but you've lost it on one side of the car only. So now it's going to be imbalanced. I mean, clearly it still wasn't terrible because uh, you know Max was able to make a couple of passes and ultimately ended up finishing ninth on the road. Um, uh, sorry, 10th on the road and, and ninth after Vettel's disqualification. So he got a couple of, of valuable points. Um, so it wasn't, you know, a, a total nightmare, but yeah, it was definitely hugely compromised. I largely felt the same. I didn't expect you and I to have a debate here. I just uh, just wanted to kind of confirm as much as anything. Um, and it was interesting to see how it's, to me, it seemed like, Verstappen's car was a little racier at the beginning than it was as the race continued and maybe that was just that he leaned on his fresh medium compound tires a little bit heavily to make a couple passes early on but as we got into like the more tire management phase of things the lack of downforce did in fact hurt tire deg a bit and he had to take it easier than he would otherwise so that the tires would last and he's not having to pit like three times or four and uh, lose even more ground yeah i think psychologically knowing that you're ahead of your main championship rival probably helped him in the race um but then obviously hamilton was able to get past him uh through the first round of pit stops and uh and and pull away quite quickly and i'm sure that probably um, didn't help his mood very much uh, as he was mired still in the in the battle with Daniel Ricciardo and, and you're right with Mick Schumacher who proved that his elbows are suitably sharp <laughs> even driving a hat <laughs> um, yeah he was very feisty in, in his defense and well you know why not he had the chance to actually 
you know, score some points and um, and, and defended his place uh, rather than having to just obey blue flags. So fair play to him for giving it giving it everything. Yeah, I think Mick did himself a lot of favors this race week. Race weekend, he got a lot of attention and did very very well through that because he was elbows out, but he was also fair. It wasn't there. They weren't moves that people were throwing their arms up and saying, this is ridiculous. They were just really good racing moves. Strong, but but I, I'd argue still on the fair side. Yeah, I don't think he did anything too, uh, too terrible in his defense city, but, uh, but robust would be the word I would use. Ah, so, good word. Um, yeah, so we then had this fascinating battle at the front. We had uh, Ocon versus uh, Vettel. Um, Which people and, thought... Yeah, Vettel would overtake fairly easily at first. Well, it certainly looked that way, didn't it? I mean, Vettel seemed to have more pace and looked to be trying to find a way past. Um, and, you know, particularly around one, one of the pit stops, you know, he came out very close to Ocon um, and looked to get, you know, alongside uh, at least on one opportunity. And But yeah, he, d- he couldn't quite pull it off, could he? And, and you've got to give Ocon some credit. I mean, you know, you're leading a Grand Prix for the first time. Uh, you've had a few you know marginal races so far in in the season um under quite a bit of pressure to not make a mistake um and you know he he definitely stood up well to the test i mean vettel i think we all have question marks over vettel's racing ability um but uh but yeah you're still you're still up against a four-time world champion who's won more than 50 grand prix and and he did a good job yeah absolutely right and he did it over and over and over again i mean i don't think his gap was ever more than like eh, second and a half, maybe two seconds for a couple of laps. But, you know, he had a lot of laps with less than a second gap with Vettel having uh, DRS benefits. So not only was there pressure, there was rarely any relief from that pressure. So it was a lot to deal with throughout a Grand Prix. And on top of that, there was also, hey, by the way, Hamilton's going to be coming. And obviously that didn't quite end up being the case, and we'll get to more of that in just a moment. But uh, I think you're absolutely right. We have to give Ocon. He deserves a lot of credit here. This was very reminiscent of uh, Gasly's performance at Monza last year, where everyone thought, ah, the McLaren's going to overtake the uh, Alpha Tauri, and we'll see if the McLaren can hold on. And then next thing we know, we're looking at Gasly on the top step of the podium. And I think we had something very similar going on here. And uh, just so brilliant driving by Ocon. And the elation that he felt was so nice to see. It's so nice to see. You get so used to the same two or three different people on top step of the podium. It's so nice to see first-time Grand Prix winners. Just that real, just genuine... To the marrow joy. They're just overwhelmed with it and they can't help but let it out. So, I, you know, that was a, a worthy prize to Ocon, but also to us fans of the sport to be able to get that at the end of such a tumultuous Grand Prix. Yeah, and, you know, I thought it was fascinating. First win for a French driver in a French car uh, with a French engine since Alan Prost in 1983. So, that's a great little stat. Of course, you know, French car, you could debate a little bit as Enstone isn't in France the last time I looked. But it's certainly French funded. And, um, you know, talking of Enstone, that's the first win for the Enstone based team that's come under many names, including, you know, Renault and Lotus since Kimi Raikkonen won in Australia back in 2013. So, uh, you know, that's the team that Michael Schumacher won his first championship with uh, when it was known as Benetton. Um, so it's good to see them having, you know, all of the entities I just mentioned having some success because it's not been easy for Renault uh, since they re-entered the sport. Uh, they've been under a lot of pressure uh, and obviously that cost uh, Cyril his job last year. Um, so, yeah, good, uh, good timing for them to have a little bit of a, a fill up here before we get into the new rules for next season. Of course, the key to the win was was uh, Ocon's teammate, uh, Alonso, who did him a, a lot of favours. Uh, I guess we can get onto that when we talk more about Hamilton's race. But but for sure, um, you know, Ocon drove very consistently, very, um, you know, very well. And 
I think it helped that the Alpine and the and the Aston Martin's inherent pace were very similar. They were almost next to each other on the grid. So clearly there wasn't a lot to choose between the two cars uh, around Hungary. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, just imagine the pressure of, of trying to convert the opportunity into a victory and being able to stand up to that and deliver. I mean, must be hugely satisfying to achieve that, that lifelong dream, right? To become an, a Grand Prix winner. So yeah, congratulations to him. Absolutely. And I think we are at a good time to get to Hamilton's race, but I don't want to talk about Alonso just yet. I want to talk about Carlos Sainz and what an amazing job he did, not just in pure race performance, but also his strategic thinking that he very publicly displayed for us to listen to and just how much he was thinking through that race as he was competing in that race and you know a well well deserved podium for carlos yeah i agree i mean he seemed I mean, not only is he having to figure out the pit stop strategy um, quickly sorry i'm i'm getting uh, he wasn't physically on the podium we'll get to that part in a minute but he yeah, ended up getting yeah. podium points I'll, I'll i'll just clarify real quick that's very true um yeah i mean he he had to figure out the strategy and overall the team on on the tire strategy because otherwise he would have definitely not finished ultimately third um but i think he was also a little bit frustrated wasn't he i think he thought that in a ferrari he probably should have he should have won from that situation and was a bit mystified why they didn't have more pace in the race but but certainly he seemed to maximize what he had um and uh um, did a did a solid job and he obviously managed to hold off Alonso who put him under a lot of pressure at the end there um, and I think Alonso was on slightly fresher tyres if my memory serves me right so yeah I mean good recovery from his awful day on Saturday definitely to get uh, to get third place um, well but, and um, we're going to jump ahead just a little bit here we'll get back to it but Carlos Sainz is currently sixth in the drivers championship 83 points seventh Charles Leclerc with 80. Yeah, well, it helps if you finish a few races, right, to score points. So poor old Charles had nothing to do with his, yeah. his DNF, did he? So, um, yeah, but, but it, it but just goes still, to the point. He's having still a strong remains season, the case that, I mean, Carlos is just mathematically, he's the lead Ferrari driver at this moment. And he's, as we've said before, he is doing a phenomenal job in his first season at Ferrari, you know, against a driver that many think are, is, is one of the top three drivers on the grid today and you know comprehensively blown away his teammate last season and many thought he was going to do that to Carlos this year uh yeah he's that same four-time world champion we were just talking about exactly so yeah I mean Carlos is having a good year definitely um and uh delivered you know the points when it mattered on Sunday again so so that was uh salvaging Ferrari's weekend for sure yeah so Hamilton if we go go to Hamilton I I thought he you know some of his passing moves were were slightly audacious. I mean, the one he made on Sonoda uh, through turn four or five was, was uh, I mean, I, I thought he was going to be taken out by Sonoda, honestly. You put your whole race in the hands of a, of a rookie driver at a, at a passing place that's not that common around Hungary. Yeah, um, and you know, is, he, is he 21 yet? I mean, a 20-year-old yeah. rookie at that. Maybe he's 21. He was born... Well, in the 2000s, I know that much. Yeah, and he was streaming the Olympics while he was running in the race, apparently. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he couldn't pull that same move off on Alonso. Alonso was far too wise in, in terms of car positioning. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, he he got frustrated early on, didn't he? He said he, he couldn't run close enough to the cars in front to pull off any moves, but seemed to seemed to uh, pull himself together to put a decent charge on um you know he, he was able to make the passes he he needed to and and with the pit stop strategy you know get rose up the order until he got behind fernando uh, who had only stopped a few laps earlier um and you know it, fernando gave us a masterclass in in defensive driving didn't he i mean really really smart driving knew exactly where where to position the car how to commit or not commit to corners um, you know, he wouldn't defend too hard to get himself offline and lose speed on the exit. He, he would just, you know, put the car where he needed to be to, to warn Hamilton not to not to try it. And then obviously kept the momentum up and, and was able to then defend in, you know, whatever the next corner was. And 
it was a bit unfortunate. I think he could have probably held that on till the end of the race, but he just he locked up into into turn one, and that gave Hamilton enough of an opportunity to then get him into into uh, turns two, three. So, um, but he held off Hamilton for more than ten laps, which is which is no mean effort really, given the performance differential between an Alpine and a Mercedes. So uh, it was it was vintage Alonso, don't you think? Well, and he did absolutely. It was, and he did all that on the weekend of his fortieth birthday. There so you go. See, forty somethings are still are still uh, still got it right. Yeah, it was, it, his birthday was July 29th. and uh, here he is. Just he just put in that drive was all the things we knew. I mean, that was the kind of moves that he was pulling against Hamilton. It was the same thing we saw when Alonso raced Michael Schumacher in 2006. I forget which Grand Prix it was. Was it the Spanish Grand Prix? I, uh, no, I, I can't remember the race. But uh, he, he held off Michael Schumacher for like 20 laps. And this was Renault against Ferrari in 2006. And it was just as you described it. Just the, He placed the car inch perfect, entry and exit, just to keep... The car for behind from building up the momentum needed to make the pass in the following corner. So it's just incredible to watch. And it took Alonso finally wearing out his tires enough and running a little bit wide, uh, you know, slightest mistake, running a little bit wide that gave Hamilton that extra little bit. And let's not forget, this is Lewis Hamilton here, right? You know, seven-time world champion, 99 race wins. This is no slouch of a person behind him that we're talking about. So his ability to hold off anybody as well as he did is just as you said, it's absolutely a master class. It's incredible to watch and it's it's just mighty impressive. But it kind of happened because Mercedes had a little bit of an odd pitch strategy. So there was that super odd being on the inters for the first lap. Then he switched to mediums the following lap and then switched to hards. What did you think about the Mercedes pit strategy that led up to this epic defense that he dealt with with Alonso? Um, well, I mean, obviously the whole, as we've talked about, the, the tire selection at the restart, you could question and the timing of the of the move from inters, you could question but I think other than that, uh, it was fairly sensible. I mean, they pitted him when they needed to, to get around people to do undercuts or, or to give him fresher tires to, to chase people down. I, I didn't have a problem with the with the pit stop strategy once we got past the whole restart and into this debacle. Um, that, that was really where they, they made themselves, their, their days work very hard. Um, yeah, I think... You know, there was a, a, a moment where Alonso was actually catching Hamilton, wasn't wasn't there, and then Hamilton stopped again, his last pit stop, uh, to go on fresh rubber. And he, the, the the speed with which he he closed back in on Alonso on that fresh rubber was extraordinary. Uh, and you made made you think that Hamilton was going to make quick work, but even with that tire advantage and the pace advantage in the car, he he just you know he just got. As we've as we've talked about, he just couldn't find a way past, and Alonso's driving was too good. Uh, his defensive work was was consummate, and you know it cost him ten laps. And you could say that that really cost him the race because once he got past Alonso, he quickly got past Carlos, and then he closed the gap to Vettel in some in less than two laps. I mean that was extraordinary. Um, how absolutely quick, how much how much pace he still had in the car. Um, and you know, you would have thought if he'd had you know five or six laps, he probably would have dispatched um, both Vettel and Ocon. But uh, yeah, I mean, well, Alonso... that was Mercedes' expectation. They they fully thought that he could win the race on this strategy. That was their intention, and it was Alonso that absolutely unraveled that strategy, one hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. Alonso created the victory. Uh, for Ocon and and you know it looked like he'd done Red Bull a favor because that meant Hamilton on the track only finished third um you know and and reduced the amount of damage that they'd sustained um but but obviously as Vettel got disqualified Hamilton ended up coming second 
he didn't get fastest lap because Gasly got fastest lap, but he still scored 18 points. So that was a 16-point gain on Verstappen, which, which is massive because in a normal race, you wouldn't expect Hamilton to beat Verstappen by maybe more than one or two places. So let's say the starting three in a normal race had finished as, as in that order, then he would have gained 10 points on Verstappen. So this was, this was still a big win in the championship battle for Hamilton, but it could have been worse without Alonso's efforts for sure. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, um, there's more to talk about in the race. I want to go down the order just a little bit more, but I have another Facebook comment to read, and that's from Bernard A. He wrote on Facebook page, another exciting race fueled by the weather that led to cars bumping into each other, then red flag and weird Mercedes strategy. And to crown it all on disqualification for Vettel, Alonso's epic defense from Hamilton won the race for Ocon, now I know what Ocon looks like. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to uh, give a shout out to Bernard A. Thank you for the comment. And uh, also from, for the replies from Craig Wilson, Colin Sato, and Lori Jordan. But uh, I think that Bernard A. summed up the race very well just then. Um, but going down the order just a little bit more, we had Pierre Gasly uh, put on a good recovery drive. And he was followed by his teammate, uh, Yuki Tsunoda. A 5-6 result after Vettel's penalty, which we'll get to that in a moment. 5-6 result for Honda. And then a 7-8 result for Williams. Latifi ahead of Russell. All of a sudden, Williams is eighth in the Constructors' Championship with 10 points. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, we, we I certainly was living the hope that George would score a point in one of the last three races where Williams seemed quite competitive in Austria and Britain. And then, as you said earlier, uh, you know, with the disastrous qualifying going out in Q1, it looked like their opportunity had come and gone to finally score a point. And yet they, they, you know, so often we've seen in these, in these mixed up races, Williams still unable to take the chance, right. And, and be uncompetitive in wet conditions or somehow still finish last when everyone else has fallen off the track. Uh, but here they really they really took advantage of it, and you know it's their first point in fifty five races, um, and 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 they got ten of them. So so f- yeah, fantastic result for the team. Totally um, totally deserving. I think they've been through a really hard period in the sport. It's great to see them you know making progress, not in just pace, but now in point scoring. Uh, you know, it means a lot of money if they can hold on to that position by the end of the season, uh, taking obviously Alfa Romeo and Haas, assuming they finish uh, ninth and 10th. Um, it's funny how Latifi finished the higher of the two um, on pace. That, that's a surprising result. But you have to say that Latifi did a solid job in the race. You know, he, he um, didn't make any mistakes, uh, didn't do anything daft, ran solid race pace and uh, and finished in front of Russell on merit. So uh, fair play to him. You know, he's one of these sort of uh, rich daddy drivers that we have in the sport. Um, and he's been out qualified by Russell by embarrassing amounts at times. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, his pace in Hungary seemed decent, even in qualifying relative to Russell. And, uh, you know, he delivered. So fair play to him. We got through the race. We saw the podium. It was a lovely podium. Vettel once again finishing second place, his second second place finish since Baku. Um, And really, I mean, the fact that he didn't get the win, completely understand his frustration. But it was great racing by Vettel, just generally speaking, to, you know, he had the opportunity, but he did a really good job to hold on to it and everything else. And I have to say I'm a bit disappointed I didn't get a stronger reaction from you for not doing the overnight delivery of the liter of fuel. But (laughs) whatever, Vettel's car did not have the liter of fuel required for post-race test. And uh, it was like three-tenths of a liter or something like that, which disqualified the Aston Martin from the race. And just like that... And I'm assuming he has to give the trophy back, too. Uh, you can keep the champagne, Vettel. Uh, just like that, that great result is all for naught. It doesn't take away from the race performance that Vettel had, but it takes away most everything else. So, I mean, I guess more than anything, it's just unfortunate, huh? 
Yeah, I mean, if you speak to uh, Otmar Safdauer, he will tell you that there is more than one liter of fuel in that car. They just can't extract it according to the rules imposed by the FIA. So you have to be able to provide the one liter uh, without using, uh, you know, without removing any bodywork or anything like that. I so, mean, was it in Vettel's pocket? I mean, where, where was it? You know, yeah, so, this is a smoky so, eunuch moment where it was in the roll cage. So, yeah, very frustrating. I mean, it was great to see Aston Martin up there fighting for the win and Vettel too. Um, and you would have said that it was a well-deserved second place. So to lose it on a technicality um, was obviously hard. They they knew they were low on fuel. They asked him to stop out on track on the the lap post-flag um, to conserve fuel. But I think they still thought there was enough in the car to, to uh, meet the requirements. But clearly they couldn't pump it out. And so therefore... They were DQ'd. Now they are probably going to protest, but I, I find that hard to believe that they'll they'll get that result overturned. So, so as of now, he is uh, he is a disqualified driver, and everyone else moves up a place, as we've talked about. So, yeah, um, I mean, it's great that that Aston Martin are are showing life that that we'd seen under uh, Racing Point last year. You know, potential race winners. So, and and as we've said on numerous occasions, Vettel looks more like his old self this season, driving with uh, renewed confidence and is, you know, more often than not, completely uh, out driving his teammates. So, so uh, you know, great that he's still in the sport and, and racy, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And we now have a driver's championship that is very, very alive and well. Gives us plenty to be excited for for Spa for the end of the month. But look at look at this constructors championship. Mercedes, three hundred three points. Red Bull Racing Honda, two hundred ninety one. So very close, just eight points separating those two. Ferrari, one hundred sixty three points. McLaren Mercedes, one hundred sixty three points. They are tied going into the summer break. That's incredible. And then now we have Alpine in fifth with 77 points, Alfa Tauri in sixth with 68, Aston Martin Mercedes with 48. So the the race for fifth in the constructor is going to be very interesting to watch because clearly Aston Martin has more pace than that seventh in the constructors would suggest. Um, and then just as we just talked about, eighth, ninth, and tenth, Williams has bit of a cushion you could even argue against Alfa Romeo and I think everyone feels about the same about Haas right now so uh, kind of just pretty incredible way to go into the summer break here in Formula One for 2021. Yeah the championship uh, looked like a done deal didn't it after the Austrian doubleheader now it it looks alive and kicking and uh, teed up nicely for the balance of the season I think the one thing that is looming um, certainly for Red Bull is potential engine penalties uh, so obviously you get only three power units for a season um, and uh, there's quite a complicated arrangement of how many components you can have um, but ultimately you know, Red Bull lost uh, a PU during the uh, incident at Silverstone I guess they found they were going to try and run it over the Hungary weekend but they found a crack on Friday so they had to switch the unit that may still be salvageable but now Red Bull are admitting that they probably are going to have to take a penalty at some point uh, in, the, in the balance of the season uh, because of that situation and, and Ferrari are also in a similar boat so we're going to start to see teams having to take penalties for, for pa uh, powertrain components on, uh, and that may, that may be quite costly in itself um, and there's a lot of anger actually given that we have a cost cap um, and that the damage uh, of, you know, in these types of incidents, can run into the millions of dollars, and that all has to come out of your your budget cap for the season. And obviously, you know how how much you obviously budget something for damage during the course of a season, but it's hard to budget too much. Um, and so, this is something that I think will be debated a lot over the coming weeks, and and how this gets resolved. Uh, is going to be very interesting because there's some people calling for the person who causes the damage to pay for it. So, but uh, but I can't really see that getting the necessary. Yeah, number I of mean votes that throws to go into a racing effect. incident into a whole nother level, though, doesn't it? I Absolutely. Mean, 
Yeah. yeah. Now we could have insurance um, claims and no fault driving and uh, all that I mean, sort of nonsense. I I feel compelled to say that this is this is the problem. This is this is why you have to make the championship inherently less expensive as opposed to just putting a cost cap on how much you can spend because you know, uh, IndyCar does not have this problem. Obviously, I'm not saying Formula One should be the same as IndyCar. We had that big discussion just last podcast. I'm not arguing that, but making it more inherently affordable is the better way to do it, not putting a, a literal cost cap on things. Well, but, you know, we've seen over the years, whatever the whatever the rules, that those with the biggest budgets will find a way to spend it. So you can't, unfortunately, that's, that's not work. So you... If so I'll give you an example. So if you restrict wind tunnel time, the the rich teams just go and invest more in computational fluid dynamics, right? You limit testing. Teams will then develop complex rigs that allow them to test test the vehicles, you know, um, on site at the factory. So they'll find a way to spend money to give themselves a performance advantage. So you take one thing away, they'll find something else. And, um, and so the only way to... to to ultimately control it is by saying, well, you can only spend this amount of money. And then that way you have a, a level playing field with the, with the teams that can't raise the 500 million pounds or dollars, you know, to run two cars for a season. Should um, crash but, damage be excluded from that cost cap? Yeah, I think that's where they have to go, isn't it? They, you have to have some sort of ruling by the stewards to say that the, the damage incurred was no fault of the team or driver and therefore that should be able to be replaced without without coming under the cost cap. That That's some sort of logical solution uh, that might be dreamt up here as opposed to trying to share, you know, um, force one team to pay for another's damage. That, that, that doesn't seem workable at all, a complete non-starter, but I can see cost cap allowances being the way to go. I totally agree. So um, there's one other thing I want to ask you before we uh, leave this Grand Prix. Um, who was your favorite driver to watch at the Hungarian Grand Prix? Who was your driver of the day of sorts? Uh, <laughs> that's a tricky one. I mean, honestly, you know, uh, initially when Alonso started defending against Hamilton, you in it, I was a little frustrated as I was hoping Hamilton would, would continue his recovery. But then the more you watch uh, the, the genius of Fernando, uh, the more you start to appreciate it. And then you just have to sit there and, and smile and applaud because it just was in, incredible. Um, and there's few people in the world that could pull off that type of that type of skill, that type of level of driving. So for me, it has to be, it has to be Fernando. I don't see how you can make a case for anybody else. Yeah, so so Mick Schumacher, I think, considering the Haas performance, the 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 amount of racing that Mick did, especially considering his age, is really really impressive. But just as you said, the what Alonso pulled off, and just how much he did it, how consistently he did it, with the performance of car he had, I, yeah, you just. You have to, you have to just tip of the hat to him and say, yeah, that that was that was really something special to watch. Yeah, I think what hurts Schumacher's case is that he only ultimately beat Giovinazzi, who uh, was given a ten-second stop and go. So, um, you know, you've got to you've got to race well, and you've actually got to come away, I think, with a bit of a result. Um, and he he didn't really achieve that. Uh, I think there's signs of life there. There's promise. I think his first season in Formula One for, for Mick has been, um, you know, glimpses of, of ability, but but the lack of consistency and then sort of the question mark over the, the teammate quality um, is a big issue for him. But, but sure, more races like that uh, will help him certainly stay in the sport. I mean, I don't think we've yet to see, you know, the sort of performance that his dad was able to achieve yet. So I, I don't think... You know, you can say it's the second coming of Michael just yet. Um, we And, you know, of course, Michael, you know, he just, he, he landed with an explosion, didn't he? I mean, it's from his first race for Jordan at Spa, uh, he was a revelation. 
and then he went to Benetton and was the same there and then he won races in his first full season I mean that's that's unfortunately the benchmark he has in the Schumacher family to, to judge himself against which is a tough one it's a tough one for anyone um, but yeah I mean I, I, I agree it's, pr- it's promising he's got a long way to go he's more I still think he's more on the Ralph side than the Michael side of the Schumacher family racing ability yeah but you know, uh, you could do worse than that in life. <laughs> yeah, Ralph wasn't a bad driver, true. <laughs> um, so uh, just a little bit of logistics to go over here. Uh, it is the Formula One summer break. However, there is an IndyCar race coming up. But given that uh, racing is quieting down just a little bit, uh, so will we. Um, I We are going to try to put a cod- podcast together covering the IndyCar race. But uh, we're going to take a couple weeks off in between that just give ourselves a touch of a breather our microphones are getting hot that's the big issue i will not however uh, be putting any breaks on my video cameras and wouldn't you know it i did put together a new uh, video on youtube Um, it is not the one that uh, chris roche might be thinking of but i did a lap around a racetrack in texas with um, townsend bell who is a brand ambassador for lexus and a former IndyCar driver has done a lot of sports car stuff, still current sports car driver. And he gave me a lap in a Lexus IS500, which has a 5-liter naturally aspirated V8 and sounds phenomenal. So we did a lap and had a chat all at the same time. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, Townsend likes going sideways. And uh, I like recording things. So it was a lovely marriage. <laughs> Yeah, have you managed to find that wide-angle lens setting on your video camera yet? Because you're going to need that for the car you're uh, reviewing currently, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, and that is uh, the video that I am literally uh, stopped editing to uh, put together this podcast. So um, that will be coming soon. But for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Oh, Chris, I hope you have a lovely summer break. You too, Robin. Thank you. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.